Good evening, church family. Good to see you this evening. Boy, that's a very true statement. We serve a good God, not a bad God. Amen. Thank you, brother, for using your talents for the Lord. I love it when the young generation not only sings, they have a musical instrument. You're not seeing that as often anymore. And uh, if you're a parent here tonight, I would challenge you to consider getting your children involved in music, even more than sports. Amen. All right? Listen, I, I'm speaking from experience. Our, pa- our parents, my parents, put us into sports and music. But what was interesting is following my high school graduation, I really didn't use the sports anymore. But I've used music perpetually ever since then. And so just want to encourage parents, be thinking that way. Grandparents, be thinking that way. Develop that next generation for the Lord. Amen. And music is a universal language. Very quickly, how many of you need a handout? All right, how many of you need a handout? Pastor Shot needs a handout. Brother, don't give yours away. Now, you don't have one. What's that? Bring one up here for my wife. I grabbed hers. All right, so I want her to have one. And uh, so it, here, here comes the scampering usher. All right, he's just going to scamper this up. And if you need a pen, raise your hand. All right, we're not going to write for you, but if you need a pen or a handout, either one, raise your hand. And these good-looking ushers will move that right to you right away. Amen. All right. Now, while they're passing those out, keep your hand up if you need a pen or a handout. Do want to encourage you to see my wife after the service. If you don't have one of our bookmark prayer cards, be sure to see her and get one. Second of all, if your family doesn't have our newest prayer letter, all right, the new, newest ministry letter, we do a full-color one in the spring and a full-color one in the fall. We've got some extras, and Deb has them, so if you haven't seen that, be sure to grab that. This one has great info. We had a great service in San Diego, Veterans Day. I actually preached in uniform there. We had two adult men get saved in the morning service. That was a real blessing. That was in a Filipino church in, uh, in uh, Southern California. Family camp is noted. Um, also, we note the new care package program that we're sending to Okinawa, Japan. Pastor Stuart Jellison has a church right outside of Camp Hansen. And what's very interesting about this, this church plant is he's about a block outside the main gate, and all the Marines have to go right past him on their way to town on Friday night. You have to be an E6 or higher, an E6 or above, to drive a motor vehicle, which means 80% of the, the base is on foot. They're not allowed to drive, and so they have to walk right past him, and he, on Fridays, waits for him. We call that a target-rich environment, all right? All these lost Marines parading past, and a very unique opportunity. It's where I was years ago, how the gospel got into my life as a young Marine, on foot outside the gates of Naval Air Station Millington, and the servicemen center out there accosted me for the Lord and gave me the gospel and uh, ended up winning me to the Lord. So he's in that situation, and his, I note his work there as well. We send care package programs to him. So see my wife for those two items. And uh, do want to just say this before we move into the message. How many of you were here for the morning message regarding those three chairs? All right. How many of you found your chair, your primary place you're seated? All right. How many of you would say to me, that was a challenging thought? Amen. That's a challenging thought. It's where we are today. Let me, let me say this. 
People have often said to me, why is that such an incredible help? And just recently I've begun to preach this. Half the battle is knowing where you are and being honest about where you really are in, other, in order for God to give you help. Amen? What was the most dangerous chair up there in regards to the next generation and others? It was that second chair, wasn't it? Maybe saved, but they're confused, and the hypocrisy hardens hearts. And, and so I would say this. I've had many people come to me after a message like that. I've had men write me notes. Let me give you one note. Let me just repeat. A man wrote me a note Sunday afternoon concerning that. It was down in Colorado, and he said this. This is what his note said. I've spent the last 12 years of my Christian life living in the second chair. My son is now a devout atheist, hates God. What can I do to change that? Wow. I saved those notes. Those are real. Amen? Let me just say this. This is what I told him. And it's what I would tell anybody today who says, I've been wrong in the past and how I've lived out my Christian life. I said to him these words, you can always finish well. Do you know tonight we serve the God of the second chance? Amen. We serve the God of the third chance, maybe the fourth chance, never the perpetual chance. You can sin away your day of grace where he says, Ephraim is joined to his idols, leave him alone. Amen. I've seen it. I've talked to those people that have said, it's done. I had my shot. If God is dealing with your heart, respond. Amen? And you can always finish well. <laughs> you know, you may have run a lousy first lap, but the race isn't over. He hasn't taken you home. Amen? You can always finish well from this day forward. Get in the first chair and stay there. Amen? Take your Bibles tonight and go to Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12, a message that almost 12 years ago I preached here. And tonight I want to re-preach it just for whatever reason. I want to give you this message. And for the very first time, I actually have an outline. You'll notice the outline is called Lesson 5. You say, really? I've been here only for a couple messages and we're already on Lesson 5? Time sure flies when you're having fun, Amen. I've just put together a teen rally booklet. In July, next month, I'll be flying to Denver, Colorado and preaching to 274 teens for five solid days, nine incredible messages. This is one of the nine messages I'm bringing the teenagers. And I want to bring this message to you tonight. Notice what's said in Hebrews 12. Once you find your place, if you're able to stand comfortably, just stand with me. I know you have it. Hebrews 12, beginning in verse number 14. Hebrews 12, beginning in verse number 14. <clears throat> Christians are being addressed, and notice the commands that God gives us. Hebrews 12, 14, he says, Follow peace with all men, and holiness, without which no man shall see the Lord. Look in verse 15. Looking diligently, watch this, lest any man fail of the grace of God. Wow, what a, you know, frankly, what a scary statement, amen, to fail of the grace of God. Let me just say tonight, I do not believe failing of the grace of God means losing your salvation. 
The type of life Jesus Christ gives is not intermittent life. It's eternal life. Amen? He doesn't offer probation. He offers salvation. He doesn't go ahead and make the down payment for your eternity, and every month you send in your obedience coupon or he repos your salvation. He forgives you of all your sin, and he saves you once for all and gives you eternal life. So what does it mean to fail of the grace of God? Not lose your salvation, but it does mean this. To live in such a way as to be unable to draw upon the grace and power and resources of your Savior. What can cause a Christian to live such a way? The answer is given. Notice, lest any root of bitterness springing up trouble you, and thereby many be defiled. Christian, the giant in your journey and mine, even today, is the giant of bitterness. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the privilege to be in your house and with your people. And Lord, as we turn our hearts towards your word tonight, oh, how I pray that you would take this message and apply it to every individual that's here. I pray, Father, that you would cause us to be wary of our foe, to be forewarned and forearmed concerning this giant in our journey. And Lord, I pray for the marriages tonight, that you would strengthen them as a result of this message. I pray, Father, you would strengthen the bonds of relationships within this local church as a result of this message. And Father, I pray as Christians we would not live in such a way as to be unable to draw upon the resources and power and the grace of your Son. Bless tonight, and we ask your blessing upon this message in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Looking diligently, lest any man fail of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up trouble you, and thereby many be defiled. In verse 15, Christians are given a grave warning concerning the possibility of failing of the grace of God. The cause of this is a root of bitterness. You know, as I start the thought tonight, I look back over time, and I can honestly say with all my heart, I've been here, and I've noticed the power of bitterness. I've watched bitterness go ahead and destroy a friendship when nothing else would destroy a friendship. Amen? I've seen bitterness ruin a marriage when nothing else would have ever ruined that marriage. I've seen bitterness split a church when nothing else would have split the church. Bitterness is powerful because it's not an intellect of your mind. It doesn't reason. It's a passion of your heart. All it cares about is what it's feeling. Years ago, my first taste of this came home in a very sad, sad way. I remember a young man came to work for my company. His name was Sean. He'd been a commercial fisherman for years, and he's hired on with my company. He was a drunk. He was an alcoholic. He, was, he could operate well, but he'd been in booze for years and had a lot of rough relationships. But as he worked for me for the next four or five months and watched my life, he came to me one night, and this is what he said as a young businessman in his life. He said, Dave, there's something different about you. I can't put my finger on it, and I want to know what is the difference in how you you operate as a businessman. I began to point him to Jesus Christ, began to give him scripture. He began to attend church, and one night late in my office, I had the privilege of leading Sean to the Lord 
and, and, and in introducing him to Jesus Christ, he got saved. And boy, did he take off for the Lord. I mean, he became one of my closest friends. He got serious about the Lord. Everybody that was lost in his life, he began to hire them into the company and try to win them to the Lord while he trained them how to go ahead and work for us. I mean, he just took off, faithful to the house of God. And one night, he brought a young lady to me. Her name was Caroline. She was a helicopter pilot with over 3,000 hours in Bell Rangers. He introduced her to me and said she's been asking questions about salvation. And Dave, could you show her how to get saved? And late that night, about 11, 11.30 at night, had the privilege of leading Caroline to the Lord in my office. Well, wouldn't you know it, a few months later, he came to me. He said, Dave, I've been, I've been wondering, do you think Caroline's the one for me? I said, man, I have his nickname, but I'll just call him Sean. I said, Sean, man, ain't nobody for you. You're a wreck. He said, no, I'm being serious. And, and they begin, uh, we begin to pray about it. They begin to court. And one day they came to me and they said, because you're the one that led us to the Lord, we'd like you to officiate the ceremony and we want to get married. And man, we got them into counseling and uh, she had gotten saved. They were both serving the Lord. And I'll never forget because she was a pilot. What a wedding day this was. Six float planes. Russ fly in air service, Anchorage, Alaska, man, the whole wedding party. We flew out in August under the shadow of Mount McKinley, and there we had the privilege to watching Sean and Caroline get married. Man, and people from as far away as Germany came to that wedding. We came back to the reception point, and I'll never forget, if Sean had suspenders on, them things have been that far out. He just thought the world of Caroline. You know what I'm saying? His buttons were popping. And as, as we had that reception time, I'll never forget. He's, I've never seen somebody do this before. He quieted the whole crowd. And he said, listen, he said, I have an announcement to make. And uh, he pointed to her daddy up in the balcony. He said, sir, he said, I want you to know before all this crowd, your daughter will never want. I will live for her. I will die for her. She will never want as long as she lives. And he meant every single word of what he said. I think it was about three or four years later I got the phone call. It was Sean. I was in Hutchinson, Minnesota, my parents' hometown there. I took the call and I said, hey, what's up? He said, well, I figured being you were the one that married us, you ought to be the first to know me and Caroline are getting a divorce. I said, what's going on? But I already knew. He called me in tears a few weeks into the marriage. Following honeymoon night, she looked at him the next morning and said, man, she said, I, I, I don't know if I really love you. He said, what? And in that German rationalist logic mixed with Hollywood stupidity, she had it all mixed up, what true love was. She thought it was some physical relationship, some emotional thing. And she just married a guy that was going to die for her. That's true love, by the way. And unwisely, every day in her marriage, she said that to him to start his day. She voiced it. He said to me, Dave, she took my heart out and she walked all over it. And I have no love for her whatsoever anymore. Man, there was a divorce, a big legal fight. He started shacking up with somebody else. The last time Sean ever sat under my preaching was in Kenai, Alaska. My kids were there and they sang like they always did. 
Old Spiff was sitting there, and he's listening to the preaching. As I preach the word of God, in tears just going down his, down his face. And following the message, he just came up to me, gave me a big hug, put a $100 bill in my pocket, kissed me on both cheeks, and then left and just went off chasing whatever he wanted to chase. You say, what got him? Some cult must have picked him off. No, it wasn't a cult. Oh, he must have got, uh, you know, he must have stumbled across something in the Word of God. He didn't know. It wasn't any of that. It's a root of bitterness that claimed him and caused him to fail of the grace of God. You do not underestimate the power of bitterness tonight. She'll take you out when no one else will. Amen? She will get you. You say, oh, preacher, don't worry, man. I'm doing great. I don't need this thought. Don't worry. You will. Before your life is finished, you'll need every word of what I'm preaching. Let's study the foe tonight. Let's consider a few things. Pull your hand out, out. Because I think tonight, what I'm preaching on, I was talking to a pastor here in Texas just a few months ago, and he, he said, Preacher, what brought you to my church to begin with was that message on bitterness. He sat under an old warhorse preacher that said, The biggest problem in Christianity is bitterness today. And he said, we need messages like this to get our hearts right. Notice, notice, first of all, where does bitterness come from? Where does this thing called bitterness, where does it come from? Well, it comes from two places. First of all, it's a characteristic of your old sin nature. Write that down. The very first place bitterness comes from is your old sin nature. Go back to Romans 3. And look at this, how a lost person is described by the Lord. Look at what's said in Romans 3 and verse number 10. Go back there, Romans 3 and verse number 10. You need to recognize the first place bitterness comes from. It doesn't come from your new nature in Jesus Christ. It comes from your old nature. Look at what's said in Romans 3 and verse 10. A description of a lost person. As it is written, Romans 3.10, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none that understands. There is none that seeketh after God. They're all gone out of the way. Notice in verse 13, their throat is an open sepulcher where their tongues they have used deceit. The poison of ass is under their lips. Look at this now, verse 14. Whose mouth is full of cursing and, say it, bitterness. You know the first place bitterness comes from? It comes from your old sin nature. It doesn't come from your new nature. But second of all, it doesn't come from above. It comes from, write this in, below. Go to James chapter 3 and watch how the Spirit of God shows us the source of bitterness in James chapter 3. It comes from not only your old sin nature, but second of all, it comes from below, not above. Look at what's said in James chapter 3 in verse number 14. James 3.14. But if ye have, look at this, bitter envying and strife in your hearts, James 3.14, glory not and lie not against the truth. This wisdom descendeth not from above, but is earthly, sensual, and devilish. Where does bitterness come from? It comes from your old nature, not your new nature. But second of all, it comes from below, not above. Hey, could I say this tonight? Visit heaven tonight. You're not going to find any complaining in those streets up there tonight. Amen? You understand that? There is no anger and bitterness in heaven. 
And the reason is, is because the very object of heaven is a sweet Savior, not a bitter Savior. So, if there's bitterness in your heart, if there's bitterness in your home, if there's bitterness in relationships, you need to consider the source. It doesn't come from above. It comes from below, and it didn't come from your new nature. It came from your old sin nature, and you ought to do what God tells you to do, put it away. Amen? Look at me in 2 Corinthians. Look at what God tells you to do with bitterness when you find it. 2 Corinthians, or excuse me, Ephesians chapter 4. I can't read my wife's notes here. Ephesians chapter 4. Look with, look with me in Ephesians 4. Look at what God says in verse number 31. Ephesians 4 verse 31 says this, Let all bitterness. And then he adds to it, And wrath and anger and clamor and evil speaking put away from you with all malice. Look, look, at, look up here just a moment. Look at the company bitterness keeps. When you find bitterness on the street corner, she hangs out with some pretty rough people. She hangs out with malice, anger, evil speaking, Wrath, that's a rough crowd, amen? And God says when you find bitterness and you find all this, he says, put it away. You know what that literally means? Divorce it. Yeah. How many times in the ministry have I watched a couple after they get married, the honeymoon wears off. For some, it's a year or so. For others, it's an hour or two. But man, the honeymoon wears out, and all of a sudden, man, I'm stuck with you. And all this bitterness starts coming in, and this tit-for-tat, and this anger. People come to me, and they say, hey, when a warring couple comes to you and asks for advice, what do you give? I say, well, they ought to get a divorce. Say, wait a minute, you're a Baptist preacher. Yeah, they ought to divorce bitterness instead of each other. You know, what's really sad is most couples divorce the wrong party. Instead of putting away bitterness and anger, they put away each other. And did you notice bitterness and anger only grow when you do it that way? Consider the source. It doesn't come from above. It comes from below. It doesn't come from the new nature. It comes from the old nature. And if it's somewhere in your heart or home, go put it away. Second of all, who can experience bitterness? Who can experience bitterness? Well, let me just give you the list from observation. I've seen parents get bitter toward their children. Amen? Don't look at me weird. It, it happens. I've seen children get bitter toward their parents. I've seen preachers get bitter toward their people. And I was, I was in the ministry every end you can think of. I was a church member, and I know you can get bitter with your preacher. Amen? I've seen uh, employees get bitter with their boss, and I've seen bosses get bitter with their, their employees. I guess all I'm saying tonight is if your body's at 98.6 and your heart's beaten, you're a candidate for bitterness. It's a human experience. But thirdly, look at your notes. How does bitterness occur? Write this in. I think this is important tonight. Bitterness gets started only one of two ways. Number one, it occurs when others do not live up to or meet your expectations. Write that one down. This is a big one. 
Do you know the first way that bitterness can get in your heart? Is when somebody else, others, do not live up to or meet your expectations. Would you agree with me there? Your expectations are here, and so-and-so comes in down here. How many of you ever visited Alaska before? How many of you ever say, I've gone to Alaska, I know pastor and his wife? All right. By the way, if you're from Texas, just remind you, Texas is the second largest state of the union, okay? Just FYI, if you cut Alaska in half, Texas is the third largest state of the union. <laughs> We're two and a half times the size of Texas. We call Texas that cute little thing down south. That's what we do. But if you ever come to Alaska and Deb and I happen to be there, and we're in the hometown, we're from the Palmer-Wasilla area, and our schedules allow, I will treat you out to my favorite restaurant. It's called the Colony Kitchen, but its nickname is the Noisy Goose Cafe. It looks out at the Chugach Mountain Range right across from the state of Alaska fairgrounds, and when you go in there, there are just all kinds of unbelievable sayings. My phone is chock full of them. Last year when I went, I went around the whole restaurant, you know, you know like, uh, um, oh man, what, 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 some of them are just unbelievable. Ah, like if you go to the restroom, it says, don't squat with your spurs on. I mean, that's, that's a saying they got right there, you know what I mean? But the best saying, the best saying sits right there when you walk in. It said, it goes like this, if the food or service do not meet or exceed your expectations, please lower your expectations. You know, that is like, wow. The first time, Brother Fuzzy, I saw that, you know what I felt like doing? I felt like asking if I could get that plaque and seeing if they had a copy machine because I said, man, I know some husbands that ought to hear that. We just put that down, press print, and we just fill it in, say, if your wife doesn't meet or exceed your expectations, please lower your expectations. I said, man, I know some wives that ought to hear that. If your husband, Print doesn't meet your exceed your expectations. Please lower your expectations. Well, I got to thinking of some pastors that ought to hear that. If your church members don't meet or exceed your expectations, print, please lower your expectations. I thought some church members ought to hear that about their pastor. If your pastor doesn't meet or exceed, print, I mean, press that print until I ran out of paper. You and I need to recognize that one of the first ways we will set ourselves up to get bitter is when others do not live up to or meet our expectations. And by the way, could I just give you an FYI for free? You don't even live up to your own expectations that you place on others half the time. Y'all with me? We're just not fair. That's just not right. But it's the old nature that places a pile on someone else and not a lot on self. So the first way that you can get bitter in your Christianity and eventually fail of the grace of God is by watching others not live up to or meet your expectations. But second of all, this is important, the second way bitterness gets wedged in your heart, it comes through the improper handling of offenses. Write that in there. The improper handling of offenses when they occur. It comes through the improper handling of offenses. Now look up for just a moment. You should all get this because I wrote it down, but do you know there's an entire chapter in your Bible God has set aside for Christians 
telling them how step by step to deal with an offense when it shows up? You know what that chapter is? Any idea? Look at your notes. Some of you are looking at your notes. <laughs> I want to get this one right. <laughs> it's Matthew chapter 18. Now, why do you think God gave us a whole chapter telling us how to deal with offenses? Because he knows if we just do it on our own the way we want to, we're going to mess it up. Amen? And so let's go to Matthew 18, and let's look at the four steps that have to take place when an offense occurs. Go back to Matthew chapter 18. We're considering the root of bitterness. You can go through your whole Bible. This is the only thing that can cause a Christian to fail of the grace of God. It's a root of bitterness. It doesn't come from above. It comes from below. It doesn't come from your new nature. It comes from your old nature. But it occurs when others do not live up to or meet your expectations. But second of all, it also begins through the improper handling of offenses when they come. Four things to do with offenses. Matthew 18, we find the first thing to do. Notice in verse number 7, Jesus Christ gives the instruction. Listen to what he says in Matthew 18, 7. This is step number one. Woe unto the world because of offenses, for it must needs be that offenses come. Look up for just a moment. Do you see the first instruction the Lord gives concerning offenses? You say, oh, I, don't, I don't see it. Look at it again. He says, woe unto the world because of offenses, for it must needs be that offenses come. You know, it's not what's said, it's what's not said. Notice what he's saying here. What's the first thing to do with an offense? Expect it. Expect it. You say, but I'm saved, preacher. Somebody told me when I get saved, something good's going to happen to me for the rest of my life. It's just going to be peaches and cream, zippity-doo, tickety-boo. Life's going to be a dream. Shaboom. Somebody lied to you. Offenses are part of the human experience. Amen? People are going to let you down. Preachers are going to let you down. Spouses are going to let you down. Y'all with me? And I don't know where you get this idea that we're just going to tiptoe through the tulips and everything's going to be happy, happy till I get home. Man, what kind of dope are you on? This is a sick curse mud ball. We're sinful people. You say, but I'm saved. Whoop-de-doo. You're still here. You're not there. And offenses in this life are part of the human experience. You know what you ought to do? I mean, you just, you know, we all got our little planners, right? I mean, I don't really use that for planning. I have this huge eight and a half by 11, two, two, if I ever lose that thing, oh. You say, you back it up? Yeah, I just photograph the pages. That's how I back it up, all right? But you know what you ought to do? We all have these calendars, plans. You got birthdays marked, you know, and everything. You know what you ought to do? Tomorrow's date, which is June what? Okay, what did I get? 10th or 11th? What did I hear? 10th. All right? You, you, tonight when you go home, you ought to just write this on tomorrow's day. I will be offended, Matthew 18, 7. <laughs> Next day, write, I will be offended, Matthew 18, 7. Next day, right? I will be offended. Plan of the day, I'm going to get offended. It's going to be part of my day, Matthew 18, 7. Listen, you ought to just do that. And then one day comes, brother, and you didn't get offended. You go, ah! I 
didn't get offended. You put a smiley face there. Otherwise, when it happens, yep, yep, that was on the plan. Yep, that was going to happen. Listen, there's something about, it sounds weird, but if I'm expecting it, it's oftentimes easier to deal with. Amen? God gives a very first instruction concerning offenses. He said the very first thing you ought to do with them is expect them. They're part of the human experience. You will not get through this life offense-free. It's impossible. Second thing. Here's the second instruction. This one's found in the Old Testament. Don't take them. Don't take them. Go back to Psalm 119 and watch this. I've had people say, well, how can I not be offended? That person is just such an offensive individual. Look at what's said in Psalm 119. In verse 165, the psalmist said this in Psalm 119, verse 165, Great peace have they which love thy law, notice this now, and nothing shall offend them. Psalm 119, verse 165, do you see that? The first thing to do in offense is expect it. The second thing to do with an offense is when it shows up, don't take it. You ever had somebody say this? I just took offense. You don't have to say that. You with me? You don't have to take that thing and put it in your pocket and make it yours. You say, well, how can I not be offended? They're just such an offensive individual. The Bible gives the answer, fall in love with the law of God. Look up for just a moment. This is an important point. Notice the psalmist is saying this. Great peace of they which love thy law. What is the law of God? All right? Let me answer that two ways. First of all, in the general sense. What is the law of God in the general sense? It's the word of God. Amen? It's the word of God. In a general sense, the law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. It's the word of God. It speaks of the body of Scripture. Let me say this. Great peace of they which love thy Bible, thy word. Those people are hard to offend. You ever met somebody? Man, you've got to walk on eggshells every time you're around them. You've got to be careful how you say that. You got to be careful that you say it just right. You're just tiptoeing because it's like they got this chip here just daring you to knock it off. Those people don't walk with God. Their lack of patience and long suffering bereath a bigger spiritual problem. They are not abiding in a long suffering Savior's life. Amen? Y'all with me? Very pointed, but it's very true. You can ask my wife. Whenever I'm impatient, whenever I'm walking around like that, she's got to be eggshells, I am not in love with the Word of God and the Son of God. Great peace of they that love thy law. Nothing shall offend them. But second of all, what is the law of God specifically? What is it specifically? Tell me. Somebody raise your hand and say, the law of God would be the... Okay, we know the summation of it, to love the Lord the God with all the heart, soul, mind, strength. 
The law speaks of what? We call them ten something. Commandments. The law of God are the commandments of God. Could we say it this way? They're his expectations on you. How does falling in love with the commandments of God make me hard to offend? Go to Romans 3 and watch how the Word of God shows us this. In Romans chapter 3, the law is being spoken of very specifically here. And notice what's said in Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3 and verse number 19. Look at what's said here. Romans 3.19 says this. Now we know that what things soever the law saith. Okay, look up for a moment. Great peace of they which love thy law. Nothing shall offend them. Now we know whatever the law saith. Same thing. The law of the law. It saith to them who are under the law. What's the purpose? That every mouth may be stopped. And all the world may become guilty before God. Watch verse 20. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, there shall no flesh be justified in his sight. For by the law is what? The knowledge of sin. What does the law do well? It shows us who the biggest offender really is. It's not that person toward me. It's me toward God. Amen? Look at this. Go to chapter 5. Look at Romans 5. He's not done talking. Verse number 20. Romans 5.20 says, Moreover, the law entered. Moreover, the law entered. For what reason? That the offense might abound. Whose offense? My offense toward God, who never did a thing wrong. And then look at what said in verse 25. Jesus Christ of Romans 4. In verse 25, he was delivered for our what? offenses and raised again for our justification. How does this law do that? You ever had somebody accuse you of being a liar? Whoever said, somebody, somebody accused me of being a liar and I, I, I wasn't, I did not. Just raise your hand. You ever had that happen? Yes. How does that make you feel? Terrible. <gasps> really upsets me. Yes. Frankly, it's offensive. You know what I'm saying? But you know, if I'm walking in the Word of God and I have the law of God pointing out all my offenses, the law makes my offenses abound. Amen? If I'm really walking with God and somebody says, I think you lied. I think you're a liar. You know, here's what my response should be. Just a liar? <laughs> if you only knew what I really am. I'm a whole bunch worse than that. Just a liar. Oh, brother, shake my hand. Thank you for letting me up. I'm just a little old liar. That's warped, but it's true. Could it be sometimes that really all we're consumed about is a horizontal relationship rather than a vertical We would get so upset for somebody committing adultery with our spouse, and yet many times we commit spiritual adultery against a God who never deserved one second of that, who butchered his best for us. Spiritually, we whore around with other gods just like anybody else would with someone else. And we want the pass. 
but we want to hold their feet to the fire. Y'all with me? You get a good glimpse of who you really are. You get into the Word of God. You have the law of God begin to discern your thoughts, intents, and everything. And if somebody says, I think you're a liar, you seriously, you'll say, man, if that's all you think, you don't even have the full story. I'm so glad you just think that. Remember, one of the ways bitterness will get in your heart and your home is through the improper handling of fences. First thing to do, expect it. Second, don't have to take it. You get a good glimpse of who you are in the light of God's word, and you'll become very patient toward other offenders because you'll see you're the chief of sinners and the greatest offender that ever lived. But thirdly, write this down. Go back to Matthew 18. God gives us a third step on how to deal with offenses when they come so it doesn't become a root of bitterness. In Matthew chapter 18, we see the third instruction. And I wrote this down, and it's on the back of the page now. Number three, deal with them properly. Deal with them properly. Properly. What am I saying here? I'm saying this. There are times when the offense comes. We already expect it. We're walking with the Lord. And the offense occurs. And though we're walking with the Lord, it still tweaks us. In that moment, there's a third step. And that is deal with them properly. And notice in Matthew 18 and verse 15, the instruction Jesus Christ gives. Ready for this? Listen to what he says, Matthew 18, 15. Moreover, if thy brother shall trespass against thee, go and tell him his fault between thee and him. What's that next word? Alone. Say it again. Alone. If he shall hear thee, thou hast gained thy brother. Step number three Deal with them properly, and the very specific proper way to deal with an offense is alone first. Alone first. You got somebody that's offended you, you go to them alone first. I believe this is one of the most violated scriptures in, in uh, violated uh, texts in all of Christianity in the Word of God. He says, you don't go and build an army. You don't go ahead and tell everybody else what a jerk they are. You go to that person alone first. And by the way, your willingness to obey this command says more about you than it does them. Because if you want the relationship, you go to them alone first because you want the relationship. But if you don't want the relationship, this moment becomes the excuse to dropkick them out of your life. Amen? By the way, just FYI, as an observer of people, your patience and long-suffering with somebody is directly proportional to how badly you think you need them. Just a thought. Chew on that. That'll come to some of you later tonight. You're going to go, whoa, yeah, he's right. 
Why should we go to them alone first? Well, first of all, because God said so, and he's never going to steer you wrong. Amen? He, he doesn't tell you to do things that are wrong. He tells you to do things that are right. But second of all, because of the irreparable damage that can occur if you disobey this command. Let me illustrate. You ever notice as you go through life, there are some of those personalities that just grate you. You with me? Could I get an amen? Quit acting so sanctimonious. I mean, I remember I worked in the, the business up there. I had 43 people working for me. It was a sales company. And there was a guy that hired on with my company that was everything I couldn't stand in an individual. He was never on time. He was a complainer, complain, complain. I don't like complainers. I can't handle that. Because you're asking me to solve a problem as soon as you complain. And I can't stand all that problem-solving stuff. You know what I'm saying? He was never punctual. He was a slob. He would always turn his equipment in dirty. He'd always blame shift and blame somebody else for what the problem was. But you want to know what really was bad? This guy was saved. Well, that's good. But, I mean, you understand the context of what I'm giving you. But really bad, he's a member of my church. And really, really bad... He stood right next to me in the choir and sang every Sunday morning and every Sunday night. Man, we were, we were totally joined at the hip. And I remember, man, he torqued me. This went on for six months. Man, I was just getting torqued. It was bothering me. And one Friday, the proverbial straw broke the camel's back. Paydays were Friday. Noon, I opened the office up. We were an evening sales company, in-home presenters, and so I opened the office up. Friday, the payday, was check-writing day. And as I'm looking out through my glass office doors, there he is sitting outside, first in line, at 10 minutes to 12. And he's got his wife with him and his two little runny-nosed daughters. And I know why he's got them with, because he doesn't have a commission coming but he's going to con me out of an advance because he needs some money, so he wants the boss to advance him some money on deals. So I remember opening the door, and in he comes, he and Amy and two little girls. They were dressed in depression clothes, looking just sorry as can be. As he sat down, he said, hey, boss man, how's it going? I said, good, Joe. His name was Joe. I'll give you that much. And uh, he, he said, well, I'm here to get my check. I said, well, you don't have a check today. He said, no, 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 I got two deals on a desk. I said, Joe, you've been with me six months. You know how this works. That one's not out of rescission, and the finance company hasn't paid me on that one. You got two next week, but you got zero right now. And here comes the con. Oh, but boss, they're going to be turning my power off today at 4 o'clock. And, ah, and if you could just extend to me a couple hundred bucks. And, ah, and Amy's got a tear going, oh, man. And so just for sake of time, because I got 12 other guys lined up for a paycheck, I find, fine, fine, fine. Here's $200 advance. What do you do? Fine. Oh, boss, man, thank you. Thank you. But man, I'm wa my wagon's loaded. And the next person that walks in, I say, close the door. And I say, what do you think about Joe? And you know, for the next 10 minutes, man, we put Joe on a little spit. We slow roasted him and chewed on him. Man, we got our fill of what a jerk he was. And man, my guy was glad to talk about some bad guy out there because, you know, he getting in good with the boss. You know what I'm saying? And we slow roasted Joe. And for the next seven, eight people, man, we put Joe on a spit. I'd say, close the door. What do you think? And I'm finally starting to feel better. I have been 
totally unbiblical. Totally. But man, does it feel good. Because he had it coming for six months. And then I'll never forget my phone rings. And on the other end, it was about, an, about 45 minutes to an hour. It's Joe. This is how the conversation went. Hey, Dave, Mr. Summerdorf, this is Joe. Yeah, Joe, what's up? He said, listen, I'm over at Mrs. Smith's house. She's the lady I showed the product to 10 days ago, and she has paid me cash for the machine. I'm delivering it right now. Boss, man, I got $100 bills in my, in my hand, and I'll be there in the next 30 minutes, and I'm just going to hand that to you. We'll call it square on your advance. And, and listen, I just want to say this. I never had a daddy in my life. I never had anybody go ahead and tell me how I ought to live. You've been the best thing ever had happened to me besides my salvation. Thank you for being so patient. Thank you for being long-suffering. I appreciate your testimony. Thank you for putting up with me, and I promise I'm going to do my best to be a better worker. I hung that phone up, and for a moment I was like, well, about time, and then all of a sudden, whoa, wait a minute. I got about nine or ten guys out there that don't have that information. All they know is Joe is a jerk. And they can't wait to see him as he is inbound and tell him what the boss said. And I mean, mad. They're like 10 hand grenades with the pins pulled, waiting for somebody to stand on it. You know, I begin to do damage control. Hey, Sean, Sean, listen, man, I just got a phone with Joe. Please don't tell him what I said. I should have never said that. He just apologized. He's getting things right. Please don't tell him what I said about him. I begin to damage control this thing. Right in the middle of it, my supervisor from down south, he calls up. He hears the stress. And my voice said, David, what's the problem? I begin to share to him, Jim. It was Jim Brunish. Jim, he starts laughing at me. I said, Brunish, this isn't funny. He said, no, David never forgets something. It's a principle of leadership. If you're going to create your own monsters, you need to start carrying your own clubs. How many times we create relationship monsters the devil never did it. We did. Amen? Lord certainly never did it. We did it by violating Scripture and then expecting to prosper along the way. You got a problem with somebody tonight? You go to them alone first. You don't run around to everybody else. You don't get on Facebook. You don't go ahead and start bending an ear and stealing hearts. You go to them alone first. That's what God said. Amen? And if you don't do that, you're sinning against the Lord. Somebody says, well, hey, preacher, now wait a minute. I'm not the one that is the, uh, the, uh, the one who's offended. I heard through the grapevine somebody has a problem with me. I'm the accused offender. So I need to wait for them to come to me first. No, go back to Matthew 5. Watch this. Look at the instructions God says here. In Matthew chapter 5, listen to what he says in verse 23. He goes to the other party in Matthew 5. Look at what he says in Matthew 5, verse 23. Therefore, if thou bring thy gift to the altar, and there rememberst that thy brother hath aught against thee. You heard through the grapevine, someone has a problem with you. What are you supposed to do? Wait for him to come to you? No. Verse 24, leave there thy gift before the altar and go thy way. First be reconciled to thy brother, then come and offer thy gift. Wow. 
look up for just a moment. This is, this is just good marriage counseling. This is just good stuff for any relationship. The Lord's saying this. I don't care if you're the offended or the offender. You're responsible to get it right. Why would he do that? Why would he give the same instructions to both parties? Because he knows who we are. Amen? You ever had that moment in your marriage? I call it pillow talk. You're lying there at night and you're talking back and forth. And you've been noticing, guys, you've been noticing she's a little quiet. And as you begin to ask questions, she gives you monosyllabic answers. How'd your day go, hon? Fine. Kids doing all right? Yep. You feeling okay? Uh-huh. I mean, it's just a one-way deal. No tennis match coming back. So finally, you strike the courage. You just get the courage to ask the million-dollar question. You ready? Here's the question. What's the matter, hon? That's the million-dollar question, all right? I won't ask for a show of hands if you've ever done that. What's the matter, hon? And this is the answer you get. Nothing. Now, early in my marriage, I mean, I thought, okay, nothing's wrong. But that's really not what nothing means in female vernacular. This is what they're really saying in all those little letters there. This is what she's saying when she says nothing like that. You know, there's a lot wrong. All you care about is you. You don't give a rip about me. You don't care about the kids. And there's a whole bunch wrong. You're the main one. And if, and if you're not smart enough to figure out how stupid you are, I'm not going to help you and give you the answer. That's what nothing means in female parlance. Could I get a witness there? Amen. <laughs> and early in my marriage, I'd do this. I'm Mr. Logical, German, Marine Corps, alpha male. Nothing? Okay, fine. Have a good night. Roll over. It just got worse, nothing. Y'all with me? You know what the Lord's saying? I don't care who's right. I just know what's right. And I know I get no glory when there's fussing in my families, my church family, in my people. I get no glory out of that deal. The devil gets it all. Instruction one, expect them. Expect them. Man, I feel like a drill instructor sometimes. Remember when our kids would get the, I remember my platoon, we get the orders, you know? 72 of us, platoon 2087, they call our name beginning with Private Aiken. He was, the, uh, he was a Native American. And my senior drill instructor was an 0311. That's the backbone. That's the grunt, Marine. All right, he was a rifleman. And at least five times when my 72 guys got called, this is what would happen. <laughs> they would stand up and the senior would say, oh, 0311, son. Oh, a man after my own heart. And the kid would start bawling. He'd say, sir, but the recruiter said, and all my drill team would laugh, put their hands in the air and say, the recruiter lied to you, son. Welcome to my Marine Corps. 
That is how they said it, exactly that. And you know, let me just say this. You say, but I thought when I got saved, everything was going to be peachy cream. The devil lied to you, sweetheart. Welcome to real living. The first thing you ought to do is recognize offenses are part of this life. Expect them. Number two, fall in love with the Word of God. Fall in love with the law of God. Get a good glimpse of who you really are in the sight of God. And you won't take them as quickly. Number three, if you do take it, deal with it properly. Go to that person alone first. Amen? But fourthly, here's the fourth one. This is the hardest of them all. If you're not saved, this is real hard. If all else fails, you have to forgive. If all else fails, write this word in, forgive. Notice, look at what's said here in Matthew 18. Peter's listening up. Peter so is like we are, we're like him. Look, look at what he says in verse number 21, Matthew 18. Then came Peter to him, the Lord, and said, Lord, how oft shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? And then he recommends what he thinks is his huge, huge number. Tell seven times. <laughs> Look up for just a moment. Don't you know Peter knows where this thing is going? It's heading to forgiveness. And as he's listening to the Lord talk, he's looking over at a disciple, some dirty rat that has just torqued him, and he knows this is heading for forgiveness. So he preempts it and says, Lord, how often shall my brother... Sin against me, and I have to forgive him. This is the spirit in which he asks it. And then he offers up this huge number in his mind. Tell seven times? Now, let me say something. Most of us, seven actually is a big number. We like to play baseball. That was once, strike one. That was twice, strike two. You do that a third time, you're out of my life. Amen? I'm not subjecting myself to you. You with me? And he has this question in this context also. Don't miss this. He isn't saying, Lord, I love to forgive. Can I forgive somebody seven times? Oh, I love to forgive. Can I? That's not why he's asking this. He wants to get this forgiveness junk out of the way so he can do what he really wants to do on step eight. You with me? He's literally saying, how often do I have to let him go before I can finally let him have it? And then he offers seven. Look at the Lord's response. <laughs> Jesus saith unto him, verse 22, I say not unto thee until seven times, but until seventy times seven. What number is that? 490. Oh, somebody says, 490. That's the number, huh? 490. That was once. That was twice. Three, four, five. I mean, we believe in verbal, plenary, inspired, preserved word of God. Jesus said 490. 
I know some people that operate. That's good because this is what some people think. 490, okay, that's the number. And then at 491, pow, right in the kisser. You think that was what the Lord was saying? 490 and then gloves can come off and 491, it's yours. No, I don't think so. But let's just give it to you. Let's just let you have the 490 in your marriage. Let's just let you have the 490 in a relationship in your church. You know what I think? If that's what you're going to do, I think you'll blow past 491 and lose count along the way. Because forgiveness would have become your habit. I think that's what the Lord's saying. Make forgiveness your habit because he seems to infer it's his. Let me ask a serious question tonight. Since you've been saved, when did you blow past 490 with the Savior? You're anything like me. It couldn't have been more than 30 days. Might have been less. I'm sure glad in Jesus Christ he doesn't keep score. Amen? I'm sure glad in my Savior that, that forgiveness is his habit. You with me? Because it is his it ought to be ours because he is in us, this king of glory. Forgiveness needs to be our habit. Write that in there. Because unforgiveness, point B, imprisons. We don't have time to look at it in Matthew 18, but he goes on to share about two creditors that owed. One owed 37 and a half million. The other only owed about 80 bucks. And the one who owed 47 and a half or, or 48 million got forgiven, and then he takes the one who owes him 80 bucks by the throat and refuses to let him go. It's a picture of what happened the day you and I got saved. We had the $80 million debt forgiven, and then we're going to grab somebody else and say, you owe us, you owe me. And we're going to make them pay, and we're not going to let them go. We who got forgiven $80 million, 48 million won't let the $80 debt go. That's exactly the picture. You know what ends up happens? 48 million by 2018 figures. 48 million, that's the first debtor. The second debtor was $80. The 48 million is the one, that's us, we got saved. The second debtor is the, we now that are saved, go chase and grab somebody else who owes us, who offended us. And we're not going to forgive them, we're going to make them pay. You with me? And at the end of the whole deal, you know what happens? Both of them got imprisoned. We don't forgive to imprison that person, and in the process, we become a prisoner ourselves. 
Somebody says, well, I thought when I got saved, all my sin was forgiven. I mean, the Lord will never hold that against me. What does that mean that if I won't forgive somebody else, then he's not going to forgive me? You know what? That's for you to figure out. Whatever it is, it's not good. But if you're letting people go and forgiving them as Jesus forgave you, you don't have to worry about that verse. You don't own it. But if you're going to live in hatred and envy and malice, you need to explain that verse. That one's yours. At the end of it all, as we close this thought out tonight, why should we forgive? Notice why. Go back to our text in Hebrews 12. He tells us why. Notice what he says. Verse number 15, Hebrews 12. Looking diligently, lest any man fail of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up trouble you, and thereby many be defiled. Notice it's a root. You know something I know about roots? They travel far from their original source. You with me? They travel unseen, sometimes for years. And then out of the clear blue, they spring up out of nowhere. I've seen husbands say, what? Where did that come from? It came from somewhere way long time ago. It traveled into that marriage unseen and hidden. And then out of the middle of nowhere, wham. You with me? I pastored and I've said, where did that come from? Oh, they brought it in with them. It was something from the past, some experience in another church, some experience with another pastor that just traveled along. They never let it go. It just sat and festered, traveled far through life, and then in the middle of nowhere, wham. You with me? It's a root. It springs up. It troubles you. I've never met a happy, bitter person. Have you? They don't exist. And it defiles many. It never stays to itself. The misery wants company. Amen? What digs up the root? It's forgiveness that digs it up. You know, as I close the thought tonight, I can, I can say this with all passion. You and I have no clue what a real offense is. We are utterly clueless. You ought to roll the clock back about 70 years. You ought to just go visit Germany and watch Adolf Hitler rise to power and with him the final solution. And by the time he's done worshiping his loser God, over six million Jews are scattered ashes across that nation. Of the six million that perished, one and a half million were children. How big a number is that? That's a bigger number than all the casualties in all of America's wars combined, including the Civil War. It's a bigger number than all of our military casualties in the history of our nation 
And it isn't stretched over 220 years. It's in a space of about 10 years. And they're not adult combatants. They're somebody's little daughter and somebody's little son, somebody's brother, somebody's sister, dragged away, begging for mercy, sometimes violated in front of the parents' eyes. That's an offense. Not this pity junk we bicker about. Deb and I, as we prepared to be missionaries in Israel years ago, visited a place over there as we did our survey trip called Yad Vashem. It's the Holocaust Memorial. It's nestled up in the hills of Jerusalem. The foliage is like Denver, Colorado. It's about 4,000 feet. And as we came into that, it's a huge complex, all kinds of different things. They've remade the whole thing. We actually had our children. They got to visit Yad Vashem as well. But there's one memorial that gets your heart every time you go. It's the memorial to those children. The first time we went in its early stages, it was a cave. You walked in the cave, and on the outside of the cave was a beautiful two-year-old boy's sculptured face. His name, Spiegel. The famous Spiegel catalog, that was their son that died and perished in the Holocaust, and the Spiegels paid for that memorial in honor of their boy. Just a little three, four-year-old boy probably, maybe two, three years old. When we walked in, I'll never forget, we walked in and turned left, and we were immersed in pitch darkness. We could see flickering candles. Every few seconds, we'd hear something. We couldn't make it out. And then as our eyes adjusted, we saw flickering candles, all flickering in unison, hundreds of thousands of them sweeping that way, sweeping that way. It was one candle through mirrors that they just refracted that thing and made it all flicker in unison. And then every eight seconds, they named the name of one of those children, give his or her name, their age, and the village they were from when they died. And they remember every one of those children all year long. I remember <laughs> standing there in the darkness. Deb was with me, and I, it's not hitting me. It's just not hitting me. I mean, I hear it. I see it. I know the historical fact, but it's not hitting me. And so in my heart, I said, Lord, I'd like to feel, just for a second, I'd like to feel what some of these people must have felt. And he gave me this idea when... When that narrator draws back his breath to say a child's name, put your kid in there and begin to count them down. We had six children at the time. I remember I heard him draw his breath back, and I said, Kimberly Joy. I think at the time, Kimberly was how old? Maybe eight years old, nine years old. I thought of our Kimber. She's going to be 34, three beautiful grandchildren she's given us. Just a concert pianist, just a princess, just if you wanted a firstborn to lead the rest of that, that flock and herd, she was the one, man. She was just a sweet, sweet, always has been a sweet daughter. I thought of our Kimberly Joy. I said her name, Kimberly Joy, eight. Then eight seconds later, he drew back his breath, and I thought of our next daughter, Karen Marie, our little vinegar in her greens, man. Boy, she stretched daddy. But I thought of Karen Marie. She's got three lovely grandchildren. And just for us, and, and just, just has grown so spiritually. Got a wonderful husband down in Florida. I drew back my breath, and the next time, and I said, Kevin David, and I thought of our little four year old boy, five year old boy, Kavinsky. He's going to have our fifth grand, his fifth child, our, our 11th grandchild soon. And as I begin to scroll through, man, all of a sudden it hit me. What if these were my kids? torn away from me 
begging dad for help. Help, dad. And watching them butchered in front of my eyes to the laughs of the perpetrators. Man, I felt it. Crushed my heart. When Jesus Christ talked about offenses, that's the depth he was talking about. How do you let people go like that? There was a Dutch family rescued Jews for a little bit of money. They were betrayed by a countryman. Their name was Ten Boom. A book written called The Hiding Place. If you've ever read it, it's a wonderful book. If you've never read The Hiding Place, you should read it. True story. A movie made, well done. And for a little bit of money, they got betrayed, and the entire Ten Boom family got whisked off into labor and concentration camps across Europe. Corey and her sister Betsy went to Ravensbrook. That was a woman's death and labor camp. And when they entered that place, Corey's faith stumbled. She could not wrap her mind around the depravity of man, what fellow human beings could do to fellow human beings. Her face staggered, but Betsy encouraged her. She said, Corey, there's no pit so deep that God's love isn't deeper. She'd say things like, Corey, when God closes a door, he'll open a window. They smuggled the Bible and begin to hold Bible studies. One day, Betsy came to her a year or so into their incarceration. She said, Corey, God showed me we're both going to be out of here. We'll be free by Christmas. But Corey was unprepared for how it occurred. Betsy died just a little bit before Christmas, went home to be with the Lord. Corey, on an administrative fluke, got released. Within weeks of her departure, her entire unit of women was liquidated. She alone lived. She began to travel post-war shattered Europe. The war finished uh, within a year. She began to share her story of mercy and love and forgiveness. And she said as she traveled Europe, she found there were only two types of people. First of all, there were those that would not let it go. They could not forgive their perpetrators. They could not forgive themselves, survivor's guilt. She said their marriages ended in divorces. Their lives ended in suicide. They slowly died in front of your eyes. They would not forgive. She said, but there was another group. They just let it go. She said, they alone lived. But her test came one Sunday. She was in a church sharing her testimony of the mercy and forgiveness of God. And following her testimony, the preacher said, as we close in our service, I'm going to ask Miss Tenboom to just stand here. I want you to form a line and then one by one come up and tell her your story of mercy and forgiveness and what God did for you. One by one, they came up and spoke to Corey. And then this man stood in front of her. He said, Miss Ten Boom, I don't know if you remember me, but I was one of the guards in your prison. And after hearing your words of the mercy and forgiveness of God, I want you to know God has forgiven me. 
And Miss Tedboom, I'm asking you, could you forgive me as well? And he held out his hand for her to shake. In her second book, she records this moment. And she writes something like this. She said, I did remember this guard. And he literally was one of the worst guards we had. And he embodied everything that happened, including the death of Betsy. And as he stood there with his hand outstretched, begging my forgiveness, she said, I could not forgive this man for what he did. My hand was leaden. I, I couldn't lift it. He beckoning, I unmoving. And she said, as I stood there, the Spirit of God and the Lord seemed to say to me, Corey, if you will not let this man go, if you will not forgive him for what he did, then your ministry for me is over. You must never again speak of my mercy and my forgiveness. It's done. Corey said it felt like minutes. It had to only be seconds, all of these thoughts bombarding my heart. And she said in my heart, I said, Lord, I cannot. In this awkward silence, I can't let this guy go. But Lord, could you somehow forgive him through me? And she said, I forced myself to lift my hand and shake his hand. She said, when my hand touched his, she said, the mercy and forgiveness of God flooded my soul. And I let him go. And I forgave him. I've had people say to me, preacher, I cannot forgive that way. You're right, you can't. But Jesus Christ in you can. I wrote this quote from Corey. It's a fresh one I just found. Corey Tenboom said this, Forgiveness is an act of your will. And the will can function regardless of the temperature of the heart. For was there not a time where we, you and I, were that guard? And we stood in front of a Savior who we had wronged for years. Some of us even after we got saved. And we wanted His mercy and His forgiveness. Amen? We stood in front of this God who had given His best. And we, like that guard, beckoned. We wanted forgiveness. And he held out the golden scepter of mercy and we touched it. And then we watched him take his only son and put him in the guillotine of judgment and let our sin pull the lever on Jesus Christ. Only the forgiven can really forgive. Because we've tasted that. Amen? You have tasted that kind of forgiveness. You said, I haven't, then you're not forgiven. If you're saved, you tasted that forgiveness. You know what that tastes like to be set free when you deserve judgment. He gave you mercy. And what we received, we can give. Why? Lest any root of bitterness springing up trouble you and thereby many be defiled the giant in our journey is bitterness tonight what ultimately digs up the root 
is forgiveness. Amen? I say it this way. Oh, by the way, Joe, that guy that tweaked me all the time, I eventually had to terminate his employment. He just never could get it right. But I asked Deb, how long ago was this? It was about 12 years ago. I got a phone call from Amy or from a friend in the church. She said to me, this friend, do you know that Joe is dying of cancer? He was only 37 years old. Joe had stolen, he lied, he, he hurt me in a lot of ways. I said, no, I didn't know that. She said, here's his address. They'd given him just a few months to live. Two days later, I got in the car, I drove over to Joe's house and Wasilla, Alaska. I'll never forget as I drove up, man, out of the house came Amy. Them two girls, they were just a little, man, they're young ladies now. Man, they were teenage girls. They'd grown up. Oh, and, and Amy was carrying a little boy, Joey Jr., the boy they'd always been praying for. I said, man, look at that. I went in the house, and there he was sitting on the couch, leg four times bigger pumping pain-killing drugs in. And for the next hour or so, we just laughed, sang, prayed, reminisced, spent time together and said my goodbyes. He died about 90 days later. Amy sent me a wonderful Christmas card. This is what it said. Thanks for coming over and spending time with Joe. You'll never know how much that meant to him. He just always thought you'd hold it against him, all the junk he pulled and all the things he did. He loved that time with you. Life's too short to refuse to forgive. And eternity is way too long to enter unforgiven. May you be forgiven tonight, amen? And may you likewise forgive as well. Lest any root of bitterness springing up trouble you, and thereby many be defiled. Amen? Let's stand and commit these thoughts. Father, thank you tonight for this thought been years since I preached it anywhere in the nation. Thank you for just directing me this way and tapping me. Lord, I pray for your people tonight. Pray for the moms and the dads. I pray for the husbands and the wives. Pray for the church members, Lord, the leadership as well, just all of us. And Lord, first of all, we pause to say thank you for giving us eternal life for holding out the golden scepter of mercy, Lord. When we deserve to be butchered for our iniquities, you chose to have your son delivered for our offenses and then raised again for our justification. Thank you for the sweet, sweet taste of forgiveness. And Lord, I pray tonight that for the one among us who's never been forgiven, they struggle with forgiving because they've never been forgiven themselves. Lord, I pray tonight that they would be saved. They come to know a long-suffering and forgiving Savior. Doesn't keep count. Doesn't keep score. 
Lord forgives all sin forever, for all eternity. And then, Lord, for the believer tonight, Father, maybe there's a root of bitterness there. There's an offense that has been undealt with or been dealt with poorly. Oh, Father, I pray that they would forgive as you forgave them. Lest Satan get an advantage, we're not ignorant of his devices. We ask and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Heads are bowed, eyes are closed. Music plays softly. Just for a moment.